Wow, good morning. How's everybody this morning? Excellent. Is that what you said? Excellent? Okay. That's what I like to hear. Okay. How many of you can tell me who this is? Go ahead. Miguel Cabrera. Yes, this is Miguel Cabrera. Now, what can you tell me about Miguel Cabrera? He, yeah, he plays baseball. That's right. Who's he play for? New York Yankees. Oh, oh. Now, who's he play for? Detroit Tigers. And was it last year? What did what was he last year? Was he the MVP last year? Yeah. Triple crown, right? Okay. What what are some other uh, awards or other recognitions he's had? I know you know some of them, probably Carter. He was rookie of the year, I believe you're right. He can do somersaults like Luke. All right. <clears throat> okay. Now, we know quite a bit about this guy, but listen up. Luke, everybody, listen up. We know about him, but how many of us... How many of us know him? How many of us actually know him? You ever met him? Talked to him? No. Well, you know, today, and, and Becky mentioned this earlier, today's a very special day. What's today called? Memorial Day. Today's Memorial Day. Now, what is Memorial Day about? Hot dogs? Hamburgers? Potato salad? Parades? What, what is Memorial Day all about? Yes. Okay. It's, it's, it's honoring people who have died. Yes. Honoring veterans. Very good. Now, these people <clears throat> have been, some have lost their lives, some have not. But these people have fought for the United States so that we could be what? We can be free, and so our nation can be free and secure. Now, I have some names of some people here, uh, and this is in your uh, ministry memo. When When you'd like to read this sometime, I encourage you to do this. This is something I shared in a cemetery on Memorial Day one time, and it tells about uh, Captain Joshua Byers. He was a West Point man, born South Carolina. He died in Iraq. Now, do any of us know this man? We don't know him. Iraq is the name of a country. Iraq. 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 In, in fighting for our country. Okay? And it tells about Master Sergeant Kelly Hornbeck of the Special Forces. He was killed in the action, in military action in the south of a country named Samara, okay? We can read about Army Ranger Captain Russell Ripto, 
who received a bronze star and a purple heart. And all these people fought for our country, but we don't know them. But you know what? We do know some people. You know, we know about these people. We can read about them. We know about this guy. But we actually know some people in our church family who have fought for our country and our, our veterans. How many of you know Mr. Rocky Huff? You know, I saw, uh, Aunt Hope and I saw Rocky the other day. And we were talking to him and to his wife. And we thanked him for serving in our country. He fought in a very, very, very difficult battle in Germany. In a battle called the Battle of the Bulge. And he was one of very few survivors. And we have another veteran here with us. Mr. Albert Clellan is a veteran. He served in the United States Navy. And is there anyone else in our church family that's, that's a veteran? Okay, so we have Rocky and, and we have uh, Mr. Albert Clellan. These are people we know. We just don't know about them. We know. And we should express our appreciation. Thank you. <clears throat> I just want to wrap it up with one little thought, but it's a very important thought. You know, there are a lot of people who know about Jesus, but they don't know him. And there's a big, big difference, isn't there? there there's, there's a big difference <clears throat> about knowing about this guy and knowing him personally. Big difference, isn't there? And there's a big difference between knowing about some of these people who fought for our country, and we appreciate them, of course, but there's a big difference between that and knowing Mr. Huff and Mr. Clellan, isn't there? And there's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him as our Savior. And so today, I just want to really talk to you about that as we wrap it up. Our prayer is that you just don't know about Jesus but that you know him as your Savior. So as you go to Children's Church and Junior Church, listen very carefully, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your presence with us here, and thank you for this very special day. And Lord, as we celebrate Memorial Day and we honor those and are appreciative of those that have fought for our country, and we may not know many of them, we do not know many of them, we thank you for those that we do know, and we thank you for them as well, the others as well. But Lord, as we think about all this, help us to really understand the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. And we pray that all our children in our church family would grow to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus with their whole heart. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Okay, thank you. You're dismissed for both children and junior church. Thank you. Now, some of you may have already looked at your insert about the message. If you haven't, don't, okay?
If you haven't, don't look at it yet. And if you have, you can kind of cooperate along with what I'm going to do at this point. Just to uh, not just stand up here and talk and kind of go through a boring thing, um, I'm I'm going to uh, see who might be the first one to discern or to discover who I'm going to be talking about. Now, if you've already looked at the insert, you're going to have a a leg up on us, but that's okay. Um, But as we get started, uh, we are continuing our series on turning toward joy, discovering a joy that circumstances cannot change, and we are looking at the joy of humility from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, beginning today. And I I always think it's important to every once in a while... uh, demonstrate integrity and to mention that the things that we look into and discover together and study together in our morning messages are the result of my own personal study of the Word of God and also readings from authors such as Dr. David Jeremiah, Dr. John MacArthur, J. Oswald Sanders, and Dr. Warren Wearsby. And so I think it's important to give credit to those people from whom I have gleaned much and only desire to pass it along to you. Okay, so if you haven't looked at your bulletin, you don't know the answer to this, or your insert, and don't know the answer to this yet, um, I'd like to see who can uh, figure out who I'm talking about before I, I divulge the answer. Okay, here we go. First clue. In 1858, he was born. He was a very frail boy, born to a rich family in the state of New York. Uh, That was, no, I'm. All right, here we go. He had very poor eyesight, and he suffered so severely from asthma that he had difficulty blowing out the candle next to his bed. Okay. Here we go. Through very hard work and endless self-effort, he became one of the most powerful men on earth. That doesn't give you a whole lot more yet. He rose like a rocket in the world of politics. He was elected to the New York State Legislature at the age of 23. Nobody yet? You read it? Okay. Uh, He was a candidate for mayor when he was 28. He was civil, civil service commissioner under two presidents. He was president of the Police Commission of New York. I think this next one, a lot of you are going to get it. Here we go. He became a national hero as leader of the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War at age 40. 
Anybody know who it is? Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. Rough Riders. That, that's, that's where I remember starting to read about him in history. At least that's what I remember the first thing about him. But, uh, but that, that's who this is about. And then um, in three years, in just a space of three years, uh, he became governor of New York, vice president of the United States, and president of the United States. So in three years, he, he really rose to, to power. Uh, now, in many respects, the early life of Teddy Roosevelt parallels the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, both inherited advantages and both worked very hard to give themselves additional advantages. But there is one huge, huge difference between Teddy Roosevelt and the Apostle Paul. Roosevelt climbed to success in the system of the world. Paul became a success in the plan of God. The things that Roosevelt accomplished were stepping stones for his ultimate achievement, the things that Paul accomplished were stumbling blocks to his acceptance with God. And that is the huge difference between the two. One, all his self-efforts, Teddy Roosevelt, served as stepping stones. All of Paul's self-efforts actually became stumbling blocks to his relationship with God through Christ. Now, as we begin to look at Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians 3, 1 through 3, Paul presents five characteristics of genuine faith that are acceptable to God. And in verses 4 through 6, he presents seven credentials of false faith that do not impress God. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Philippians chapter 3 as we dive into this this morning. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. All right. Here in verses 1 through 3 then, Paul sets forth five characteristics of genuine faith. First of all, true believers rejoice in the Lord. We see this in verse 1, the first part of the verse where Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now when Paul says finally here, it's, it's not like, um, well, many times a pastor will say, and finally... And then he goes on and on and on. And, and then he says, and finally, and goes on and on and on. Well, that's kind of what Paul does here. He says, finally, and then he has the rest of, uh, half a letter to write yet. 
But his finally here is not a finally in conclusion. It's rather a word of trans, transition. And it can more accurately be translated as furthermore, so then, now then. And Paul says, now then, my brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul connects joy to a relationship, to a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy is, and, and we've been talking about this uh, since we actually started this whole series, what joy really is. But joy is much, much more than an emotion, an elation based on happenings or happenstances in our lives. It's, uh, happiness is a feeling of exhilaration that comes with favorable circumstances. When Paul writes about joy, he is speaking of joy that exists and persists in weakness in pain, in suffering, and even in the context sometimes of death. It results in the absence of any ultimate fear because it is based on a relationship, a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So biblical joy is not a humanly produced emotion. And the fact that Paul commands us to rejoice shows that it is an act of the will. It is not just something that happens because things good are happening. Paul says, finally, brethren, now then, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is a command. Rejoice in the Lord. And that rejoicing is based on a relationship. I believe it was uh, last week I mentioned this book, Extreme Devotion. It's actually printed by the Voice of the Martyrs. And it has a different reading for different days. And one of the uh, readings in this Extreme Devotion is a reading entitled Extreme Smile. It reads, It was getting late, and the Soviet officer had beaten and tortured Paulus for many hours. We are not going to torture you anymore, he said, smiling brutally when the Christian looked up. We will send you instead to Siberia, where the snow never melts. It is a place of great suffering. You and your family will fit in well. Paulus, instead of being depressed, smiled. The whole earth belongs to my father, Captain. Wherever you send me, I will be on my father's earth. The captain looked at him sharply. We will take away all you own. You will need a high ladder, captain, for my treasures are stored up in heaven. Paulus still wore a beautiful smile. We will put a bullet between your eyes, shouted the captain, now angry. If you take away my life in this world, my real life of joy and beauty will begin answered Paulus. I am not afraid of being killed. The captain grabbed Paulus by his tattered prison shirt and screamed into his face, We will not kill you. We will keep you locked alone in a cell and allow no one to come see you. You cannot do that, captain, said Paulus, still smiling. I have a friend who can pass through locked doors and iron bars. 
No one can separate me from the love of Christ. Wow. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And these are true stories. This is a man who understands joy. He understands what joy is all about. This is not happiness, because obviously his, his circumstances are what we would humanly refer to as very, very, very bad. And yet, he has a smile on his face of genuine, genuine joy because of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says the first characteristic of genuine faith is that true believers rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, Paul states, true believers exercise discernment. He says in verse 1 and going into verse 2, you write, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. After commanding the Philippians to rejoice, Paul turns to this second of distinguishing characteristics of genuine faith, and that is the ability to discern. No one can truly become a child of God without the ability to discern truth. Now, that doesn't mean we have to understand everything the Bible says from Genesis through Revelation, because that is not going to happen. That's, uh, Keith and I were talking about that this morning. That's why we need eternity, I think, to uh, be with the Lord forever. We will be rejoicing and learning, and it will go through eternity. And yet we do need to have discernment related to certain biblical truths if we are going to be genuinely born again if we are going to be genuinely a child of God. True believers do exercise discernment. And Paul says to write these same things again indicates that he's repeating something that he's already talked to them about. And he says this is a safeguard for you that I do this. And Isaiah says it in these terms, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. How many times do we have to repeat things to our children? How many times did our parents have to repeat things to us as children? It is not a matter of just stating it once, is it? We, we had to hear it over and over again <clears throat> until it would finally sink in, hopefully. And with our children, it was the same. We had to repeat line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Just continue to repeat. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I've already talked to you about this, but I'm going to bring it up again because it is very important and it is a safeguard to you. I believe what Paul is referring to here is what he states in chapter 1, Verses 27 and 28, and I'll read them at this time. Paul, in this same letter, says, 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So Paul has already warned the Philippian believers about the opponents, those who will oppose them as believers and those who will oppose the truth. But he takes it a step further here, and he introduces three different phrases, and each one of them he begins with the word beware. Beware. And we, we have seen signs... Uh, I think some people put them up because they simply don't want you coming to their door. They may or may not have a dog, but it says, beware of the dog. In other words, stay away. Just don't bother me. Right? But maybe they do have a dog. I don't know. Our dog would have licked them to death if they had come to our door. But Paul begins with a first warning. He describes these false teachers as dogs. He says, beware of the dogs. And now these, this is a term that we might look at this and in our 21st century cultured United States of America say, well, that's an awful thing to say. How could he say such a thing? Well, Paul loved these Philippian believers. He cared about them. And he knew what was the nature of these dogs. Now, when he says, beware of the dogs, he's not talking about a cute little thing that can sit on your lap. He's talking about snarling, ugly, attacking packs of wild dogs that roamed the cities during Paul's day. And they would sometimes attack human beings. These dogs would roam in packs, they would feed on garbage, and they were despised. If a person wanted to say something uh, that would really despise another person, he would call him a dog. And Paul is using the word intentionally. This, did not, this was not a Freudian slip. This was something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul said, beware of the dogs. They were unclean and filthy, growling, snarling, vicious, dangerous, and to be avoided. And Paul says, false teachers are just like dogs. And avoid them. Beware of them. Avoid them. Now, Paul's words seem harsh, but he knows what doctrinal error can do. And if you've been around church or believers or ministry any time, any period of time, you know that doctrinal error is extremely divisive and destructive. When we came back from the United States or from Spain to serve in the United States at Seneca Community 1 in Romulus, that church had just split over a doctrinal issue. 
there were about 60 people left in the church out of a church that had been grown to about 150 or more. 60 people. And over the years, God prospered and, and grew it up. And, and yet, we had to be constantly vigilant, constantly vigilant about doctrinal error. And that's not popular. It's not popular when you stand in the pulpit and say, brothers, sisters in Christ, beware of the dogs. Beware of false teachers. Beware of false doctrine. And as you proceed in the days, weeks, months, years ahead, Lord willing, you and your pastor will need to be vigilant and you'll need to beware of the dogs, of false teachers. And then Paul says, beware of evil workers. And Paul is referring here specifically to those that have a, an appearance of doing good, an appearance of righteousness, an appearance of godliness, and yet they are evil. And they were very evil for their religious uh, traditions. And Paul understood that well, didn't he? I mean, Paul writes here, he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, zealous, a persecutor of the church. And he believed everything he was doing was right. He was a murderer. He was an evil worker before he came to Christ. And Paul knew the horrific danger of not being attentive and not being aware of what is around. And so he says, beware, beware. He writes in Galatians 1.14 that he himself was once proud, and these are his words, of advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries among his countrymen, being more extremely zealous for ancestral traditions. And he came to Christ and he rejected all that. But there were the false evil workers who were coming into the Philippian circles and into the lives of the Philippian believers and telling them, this is what true godliness is. This is what true righteousness is. And giving them a whole list of things to do. Paul says, beware. Beware. And then he talks about a third group. He says, beware of the false circumcision. Now, Paul is talking here about a group called the Judaizers. And without getting too complicated, the, the bottom line of this is that these people returned to trying to obey the Old Testament. Trying to fulfill the Old Testament. Trying to do what the Old Testament said. You know, we had a, a co-worker in Spain... And, and this, this gentleman really got caught up in, in what could be referred to as legalism, doing things to be approved by God. And, and he went by the Old Testament so much uh, and, and just emphasizing things in the Old Testament. One day I was having lunch with him 
And you know what he ordered? He ordered blood sausage. And I said to him, Martin, he was a Spaniard. I said, Martin, the Old Testament forbids this. Oh, that doesn't apply to us today. Well, why are you applying all this other stuff to you and to everyone else today? I said, brother, you're picking and choosing what you want. And you like blood sausage. I don't know how you can like it, but you like blood sausage, and the Old Testament says do not eat the blood. Very clearly. I even showed it to him. He said, that doesn't apply to us today. And I said, brother, nor, neither does all that other stuff you're talking about. It just doesn't apply. And so, Paul knows the insidious nature of the Judaizers and those who try to bring the law. And, and this is very prevalent today. People don't go around referring to themselves as Judaizers. But you will run into people throughout your lifetime who say women shouldn't wear slacks. Men shouldn't have hair touch their ears. And on and on and on the list goes. And you shouldn't do this on the Christian Sabbath. You want to know more about that? Come to Sunday school. There is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath was Old Testament. Now it's the Lord's Day. Christian Sabbath is, is, is a contradiction of terms. And yet there are those who push that. Well, we need to know what the Word of God says. And we need not to get sucked into this. And Paul says, beware. Beware the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Specifically, that had to do with those who went through the ritual of circumcision, believing it would make them more approved of God. Now, do we have a similar problem today? I think we do. I think we have a similar problem when it comes to baptism. Should believers be baptized? Yes. I believe with all my heart a child of God, a believer, should be baptized. Why? Because Jesus was baptized as, a, as an example for us. And he tells his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he says, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then in Paul's writings, he speaks about the importance of baptism. He's speaking there about water baptism, being baptized. So I believe... It is very, very important that we as Christians be baptized. However, it does not make us more acceptable to God. And it does not save us. Baptism is something we do, you can finish the sentence, because we are saved. Not something we do to get saved. Or something we do to be more approved by God. We are approved by God and accepted by God through faith in Christ, period. So God has already accepted us. 
And we get baptized out of obedience. Just like we tell others about Christ. Out of obedience. And just as we hide the Word of God in our hearts, out of obedience. We don't do these things to get saved. We don't do these things to be more accepted by God. We do them because we already love Him and want to be obedient to Him. And so, if there was ever a person who really emphasized salvation by grace alone through faith alone, it was Paul. And he says, beware of these things and these people who add to the Scriptures. So, true believers rejoice in the Lord. True believers exercise discernment. And then Paul says, true believers worship in the Spirit. Paul says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Verse 3. Worship goes far beyond the piano, the drums, the bass guitar, the acoustic guitar. It goes far beyond vocalists or any instrumentalists we could have. It goes far beyond PowerPoint or hymnals. Worship Includes this, can include it, but it doesn't necessarily. But true worship is something that Jesus himself talked about when addressing the questions and concerns of the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. And he basically points out there that there are four basic requirements for worshiping God in spirit and truth. He told the Samaritan woman, True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I believe there are four basic requirements, which I'll just mention briefly. First of all, we must be spiritually alive. 1 Corinthians 2.14 makes it very clear that apart from the new birth through faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, it is impossible to truly worship God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You know, no matter how perhaps sincere a person may or may not be, it is impossible to worship God if we are not a child of God. Can't do it. It's impossible. Because we have to be spiritually alive in order to worship God. Second requirement, I believe, is our hearts must be focused on God. This involves contemplating God and meditating on His truths and the truths revealed in His Word. The psalmist said it this way, I have set the Lord continually before me. It's easy, isn't it, to be involved in corporate worship here and our minds wandering, right? It is. Sometimes uh, our, our dear friends, the Whitakers, contribute to that by having cattle run all over the place. And I'm kidding. But you know, 
It is. It is easy, isn't it? It's so easy to be distracted. And we're not focusing on God. Maybe we're thinking about what happened yesterday, or we're looking forward to what's going to happen later, today or this coming week or whatever. Very, very easy to be distracted. And if we're going to worship God in spirit and truth, we really need to be focused on him. Thirdly, our heart must be undivided. Uh, David prayed in Psalm 86, Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. True worship arises from an undivided and undistracted heart. We cannot worship while entertaining sin in our life. We can't. We, we can fake out other people in the congregation. We can fake out even those who are closest to us. But if we have unrepentant sin in our life, God's not faked out. He's not fooled. He knows it. We cannot have an undivided heart. That doesn't mean we're perfect. Don't, don't misinterpret that. But we keep short accounts with God and we make sure we have our sin confessed up. And we do our very, very best to keep short accounts with God. And then we must be spirit-controlled. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3.3. He speaks about true believers being those who are true worshipers who worship in the spirit of God. If we're going to worship God in a manner that is acceptable to him, we need to be sure that we are spirit-controlled. And then Paul says, true believers glory in Christ Jesus. He writes this in verse 3, the latter part of the verse. Glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in Christ means to boast of our Savior and Lord with exultant joy. True Christians give credit to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. In contrast, False believers, according to 2 Corinthians eleven eighteen, are those who boast according to the flesh. What do we have to boast about, to brag about, when it comes to our salvation? Absolutely nothing. Because Paul makes it very clear when writing to the Ephesians that it is by grace that we are saved through faith in that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast, so that no one can brag about it. When we get to heaven, not one of us will justifiably be able to walk through the streets of heaven and say, hey, man, I made it. And I made it because I was such a great guy. Hope will, hope will make it for, for living with me for 40 years. I'm kidding. But you know, we have nothing, nothing to brag about. It's by grace through faith. And I shared with you how, as a, as a little guy, I don't really remember how old I was, 
where I was with my two brothers on a raft in a lake, and, and I dove in to, to go back to the shore. I, I wasn't making it. And my brothers saw it. They dove in, and they rescued. They saved my life. I was totally helpless, hopeless, without their coming alongside me and pulling me up out of the water and taking me into the beach. I would have drowned. I would have died because I was hopeless and I was helpless. That's a picture of our salvation, folks. We are helpless, we are hopeless, we are without God. And not because of anything in us. He came and he picked us up and made us his child. I don't understand that, but boy, I'm thankful for it. Aren't you? That's grace. That's mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And salvation is all of grace. It is all of mercy. God's grace. God's mercy. And so we have no reason whatsoever to to glory or boast or brag in the flesh. We glory in Christ. And then very quickly, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh represents man's fallen, unredeemed humanness. It pictures human ability apart from God, which is non-existent. It is fallen and unredeemed. The flesh cannot do anything to please God. In Romans 8, uh, it's very clear that true believers, Paul writes, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because the mind set on the flesh is death, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We put no confidence in the flesh. It is by God's grace, God's mercy, not by works, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And true faith, I believe with all my heart, involves true repentance. And I read something, I'm not sure where I read this, but this is what I read. True repentance involves sorrow over the evil of sinful deeds. False repentance involves only sorrow over their harmful consequences. When I am truly repentant is because I am really sorry for my sinful actions. False repentance is sorry because, well, I'm going to have some negative circumstances, some negative consequences from this, and I got caught. True repentance concerns itself with man's inner condition. False repentance concerns itself only with outward conduct. Going back to my friend in Spain. 
it appeared that his entire emphasis was on outward conduct. What other people saw. And, and he had a list of do's and don'ts. Man, you don't do this. Don't, 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 don't. You do, do this. Do, 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 do. And I remember one time, we bought a, a little uh, video thing. I'm going back years here now. A little video thing. And it wasn't even VHS. It was beta. So, you're, I mean, we're talking uh, dark ages, man. But... But, but we got this beta stuff, and I would go to a video store and, and make sure I went to the sections that were appropriate to go to. And every Friday night, unless something came up in the ministry, every Friday night, we had family night with our three girls. And, and it just tickles me pink when I see on Facebook, they're doing the same thing. They have Friday family night. And we always had a, a video. They have DVDs now. But we had video. We had pizza that Hope made. And we'd get some chips if we could afford them. And a bottle of Coke or whatever. But it was family night. And we had such a good time. Well, my friend, one of his do not lists was you do not go to a video store. That was one of his do not lists. So I became on another list because I went. But you know what happened? One of our young people was in another entirely different part of the city, a place where no one in, in our church would go to that part of the city because we had no reason to. He went over there because he was looking at a job. He was a self-contractor. He walked into a video store. There was my friend. Why? Because he cared about outward conduct. He didn't think anybody would catch him there. We live our lives before God. God sees it all. And he knows it all. And we need to really grasp a hold of this and really be focusing on the inner person. What is really important and not what looks good. Because that is glorying in the flesh rather than in Christ. So, five characteristics of genuine faith. True believers rejoice in the Lord. True believers exercise discernment. True believers worship in the Spirit. True believers glory in Christ Jesus. True believers put no confidence in the flesh. We need to beware of anything that will take us down a wrong path. And I conclude with this illustration, a true illustration. <clears throat> when I was a little boy, we lived in New Jersey, and we lived on a 120-acre farm. And um, my dad was not a farmer. It was stuff that we did apart. He worked for DuPont. Uh, my oldest brother, who is now with the Lord, uh, had desire to become a farmer. And so, you know, we planned corn and stuff like that. And we had some cows and we had some pigs and chickens and stuff. Well, in our area, there were packs 
of wild dogs. Like these dogs that Paul talks about. They weren't coyotes. They weren't back east. They call them coy dogs. Uh, they weren't that. They were dogs. But they were wild. Well, one day, this pack of wild dogs came through the farm. And it was this cute, cute little fuzzy thing. I'm telling you, that dog, that little puppy was so cute. And he was doing everything he could to keep up with the others. But he couldn't. They, went out, they ran off. And I went up to that little puppy, and I picked him up, and I had him for about two weeks. I said, Dad, can I please keep this dog? And the dog really started warming up to me. It was a beautiful little thing. I even named him and had him there with me, and it was just a really neat thing. A couple weeks later, the pack came by. The dog, the little puppy had grown a little bit. And I can still see it. He's standing there, not too far from me. He looks at me, looks at the pack, looks back at me, looks at the pack, and took off. My dad had said, Len, Remember, he's a wild dog. He may not stay around. But because we, you know, he seemed so attached to me, I didn't think that was going to happen. And it did. My dad had said in so many words, beware. He's a wild dog. And Paul says, Beware. There are wild dogs. Do not fall into any of the traps of anything that is not a characteristic of genuine salvation. And as your pastor, and we, we, we fully believe that your future pastor will do the same, he will say, beware. And he will equip you to enable you to beware and to be discerning. We need to be characterized by gen characteristics of genuine faith as genuine believers. And Paul tells us what they are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence with us here this morning. Please just impact us with these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praises and or prayer requests at this time. Anyone? Go ahead, Jason. Amen. Yeah.